The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. Hey everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with us on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco, as we take a look down motorsport memory lane with my guest this week, second generation racer, James Moffat. This is the first of a two-part pod with Moff. Can I just say that six times fast? That's actually a bit tricky. On part one, we start not really normally how we start. Normally, we go back to the start with drivers. But on this episode, we're going to start with the present and talk about James's current involvement with ARG, the Australian Racing Group and TCR Competition. We're also going to talk about something not many people know. He's applied in recent times. He hasn't been successful yet for a reality TV show. Exactly which one, you'll have to listen to the pod to find out. We talk about his early racetrack memories and the categories that got him started in racing. The Lotus Trophy, the V8 Utes and how, around that time, he almost quit motorsport. We talk about him joining Sonic Motor Racing as a mechanic and turning that into driving for them in Formula Ford and the V8 Supercar Development Series. We talk about how he put together the budgets and the funding to keep on stepping up the ladder through Porsche Carrera Cup and ultimately into V8 Supercars. And part one of our chat ends with him joining Dick Johnson Racing for full-time main game competition in 2011. It's a great pod. There is plenty of topics to explore on this one. So buckle up, time to start. Part one of James Moffat on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. James Moffat, welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast. I would have loved to have been sitting in a room with you with the microphones out and uh, uh, having a few beverages and telling some stories. Unfortunately, we're doing on our computers because that's the way of 2020 and 2021. But how are you traveling? What's happening? Yeah, thanks very much for firstly having me on the, the podcast noons. A long-time listener. First-time um, caller. First-time caller, yeah. So, But, yeah, you're right. Um, it would have been nice to be able to do this in person, maybe even at Sleuth headquarters. I've never never been there, but such are the times we're faced with at the moment. We've got to do it via uh, the modern technology wonders. So here we are. Here we are indeed, and, and here you are indeed. I'm going to go right back to the start. That's kind of what we do on this pod. There's a, a whole pile to talk to you about about your career, which is obviously not even close to being finished. You've got heaps of stuff left to do. Let's start now. Let, uh, normally, I rewind back to tell me about when you're a youngster and all that. We'll yeah. get to that. But what are you doing right now? Obviously, we know you're racing the, the Renault in TCR when we've been able to go racing with, with GRM. But you've got a bit more of a role, don't you, with ARG? And what's, what's your makeup of your regular week? both in your motorsport life and in life outside of motorsport now? Yeah, well, I, I guess also the, the other thing there that, you know, I'm committed to and and still heavily focused on is my endurance role with Tickford Racing, um, you know, which will be um, Bathurst again this year, hopefully Bathurst sometime this year. But, um, yeah, I guess outside of racing, um, yeah, especially the last few years um, since, I guess, TCR, um, established itself as a series in 2009 I um, went back to driving with GRM and um, uh, I, I guess outside of that 
there's a, a very sort of minor um, role within the ARG group as sort of a, a driver's advisor, um, which has given me the opportunity to, to sit on in on some of the board meetings that ARG have had um, over the last couple of years. So that's been, um, you know, a, a great opportunity for me to be able to, I guess, sit in a, a, a board meeting environment, albeit via Zoom, um, <laughs> but just alongside some obviously really, really smart people um, and, and strong business people. So, um, you know, the likes of James Warburton, John McMillan, Gary and Barry Rogers, obviously, um, you know, I've grown really, I, I feel like I've formed a really close and, and strong relationship with with Gary and Barry over the last couple of years and, and ironically, probably a, a much stronger relationship um, I, I have with them now than when I was driving um, in, in the last couple of years full-time in the Supercars Championship with them. So um, I, I, I really enjoy that side of things and being able to see the sport, I guess, from a, a bit of a different angle. Um, so I'm, yeah, grateful for that opportunity. And, um, yeah, further to that, um, been doing a, a little bit of building and, and, and property development. So, um, yeah, sort of keeping me off off the streets and keeping me busy from um, Monday to Friday. So do, are we talking on the tools or are we talking – what are we actually talking here? Yeah, a bit, bit of everything really. Um, I'm sort of – I think I, I consider myself silly enough to give most things a go, which <laughs> – Sometimes can get me into a bit of trouble, but yeah, been uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not afraid to get in on the tools when I need to, and um, but yeah, also you know, obviously just you know things like managing all the trades and uh, along a, a build, um, and, and when I say build, sort of just residential stuff at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I really enjoy, and um, not something that I sort of ever planned or thought that I'd end up doing. It sort of just happened that way. Um, I guess with how reality TV is these days and you see all these different types of, of building shows pop up on your TV, um, that maybe sort of sparked my interest a, a few years ago um, about, you know, maybe giving it giving it a go and I did a couple of sort of minor sort of house renovations and then yeah, got to a, a point where I thought oh, I'd like to have a, a crack at, doing some um, new house builds and um, yeah, currently doing a, a two-unit site um, in a suburb in, in Victoria and Heidelberg Heights in Melbourne, so about uh, 20 minutes east of, of Melbourne, 15, 20 minutes of the city, CBD. So, um, yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. So is there a chance next year or the year after when they introduce the new contestants on the new series of The Block, we might see James and wife Leah Attempting uh, to win some cash. Well, yeah, funny you should say that. We actually did, uh, I'm just trying to think, would have been a few years back. Um, we, we applied to, to get. Ah, really? So, uh, uh -huh. yeah, we haven't been successful. So, um, yeah, not to be so far, but you, you never say you never. say never. And, um, yeah, maybe watch this space. But, uh, yeah, at the moment, happy enough doing our own thing. I know. So, sounds good. I, I know our listeners are generally not here for home improvement and uh, construction and property advice, but let's talk <laughs> car racing for, for a bit. Obviously, I want to make this pod more. It's pretty hard for you to have ever done any media in your life without your dad being mentioned and connected, but yeah. I really want to focus on 
on your career? Because you've done a lot of stuff, you've driven a lot of cars, you've been uh, involved in the scene for the best part of 15 odd years now. So I really want to focus on you, but what's your first memory? What's your first racetrack memory from back in the day? Um, yeah, I guess um, it's a question that I, I get asked a bit and, you know, it's very, uh, I guess, natural for people just to relate that I got obviously um, involved in motor racing because dad raced. But um, it was really probably my, well, not probably, it was my uncle's involvement. Um, so my mum's my sister's husband, um, he actually raced Formula Ford in the early to mid-90s, um, finished third in the championship behind Lounsey and Steve Richo in 93. So, you know, he was a, a capable steerer, Andrew Reid is his name. And um, I spent most of my younger years going to the track with him. So my sort of first memory would be um, probably Winton, 1990. 90, yeah, it would have been 1990. Um, so he would have been racing. But what I, what I sort of vividly remember is, um, and for the listeners out there, remember when Winton was a short track, the old – um, set up of the pits and where they had um, Park Fermi. I remember the, the touring car race had finished and from a distance I could see Dad speaking to Greg Hansford in Park Fermi um, with the ANZ Sierra. Um, and at that time um, I didn't really, well, I, I didn't know Dad. Dad wasn't living with us, uh, with, with, when I say us, Mum and myself. So, I, you know, but I, I knew of, of Dad. Um, so yeah, probably yeah. I think 1990 at Winton was really my first memory of a, of a racetrack, and um, from there I've spent a fair bit of time at, at racetracks <laughs> since then. Did it instantly appeal to you, or was it something that you had to grow into the the love for it? Because it's the, the natural thing always is a second or third generation racer is. It's what they're always going to do. They were born to do it is the kind of boring old stereotypical line. But then there's some of them who go off and do other things and it takes a while for the passion to kind of hit. Was it instant for you? Yeah, I was for as long as I can ever remember, that's all I knew that I wanted to do. And apparently my first word was car. Um, so, yeah, from from a very young age, I, I knew – that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I consider myself really lucky in that way um, that from a, from a, you know, even a teenage um, years po- point of view, I, I was focused and knew what I wanted to, to do in from a, from a career point of view. I, you know, plenty of people go through life, not being able to find their dream or even know what their dream is. But um, for me, uh, my dream was, yeah, it was pretty simple. I wanted to become a professional um, supercar driver in, in this country. I'd, I'd never really had any ambitions to, to chase the Formula One dream or anything like that. For, for me, it was it was touring cars or, or what became supercars um, in Australia. So where did that pathway start? I remember the Lotus – was it the Lotus Trophy Series, 2004? The, I think that's where your first race car was, but had you – done a bunch of karting or how did the door get open to, 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 to getting behind the wheel? Yeah. So not a, not a huge amount of go-karting, um, but I, I did start there 13, no, 14 actually. So I started really quite late relative to when you can start um, and really never did 
go-karting that seriously was just a, a bit of a club day warrior. Um, never did a, a state title or a national title or anything like that. A, a couple of open sort of country meetings here or there. But um, the, the thing that sort of stopped me from, I guess, competing more in go-karts is I went to boarding school. Um, so that was sort of quite restrictive in terms of what I could do um, from a go-karting point of view. And uh, unfortunately, you know, go-kart or motorsport wasn't on one of the, you know, wasn't part of the school sports involved. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, you know, and it was my uncle that, that helped me along in those early years with, with um, go-karting. I think I bought my first go-kart out of the trading post secondhand and we picked it up in, um, my auntie was involved in, in horse showing, so she had a, a, a horse float, so we picked it up. In a, in a horse float. Um, and, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. My, my Uncle Andrew, he would take me to the track. And, um, yeah, I guess fast-forwarding to when I finished school, I was, yeah, just wanted to crack on with, with trying to get into racing and um, – or circuit racing, you know, car racing. And then um, I did a couple of straight state series former Ford races in 2003, which was my first year out of school, finished school in, in 2002, um, and just really couldn't get the budget together to sort of do anything more than um, it was really only a, a couple of races. And then, um, yeah, the opportunity sort of came up in, it was mid-2004, that that Lotus Trophy Series Um and that was the, the first round was at Darwin. And it was a last-minute deal of all last-minute deals. I think um, it was the Wednesday. So, yeah, it was Paul Pickett doing doing that series that the MoPro sort of arrive and drive set up. And, um, yeah, Wednesday, I think I think it was about three grand for, for the weekend. <laughs> and, yeah, lob, lob, lobbed into Darwin. It would have yeah would have done the deal I think on the Wednesday, um, so then it was like oh okay we're racing in Darwin, shit how am I going to get there pretty last minute, so I managed to get on a flight Thursday night which ended getting into Darwin sort of early hours of Friday morning, and then obviously hadn't hadn't seen the track hadn't even seen the car sat in the car for the first time on Friday morning, um. And yeah, sort of clicked pretty well with it, and yeah, qualified on on pole, and yeah, won the the first race, and they had reverse reverse grid second races. I can't even remember where where, where I would have finished, but all I remember is yeah, I won the last race and, and won the round. And I remember at the time, yeah, I was obviously pretty wrapped about it. Sort of my first sort of go or crack at a national level form of racing but um tim slade was was racing as well um and you know we've later gone on to be really good mates but you know slady I, I knew a little bit of him at that point um but and I, I knew he was certainly you know really gun go-karter and, and highly rated in, in go-karting and i think you you'll be able to correct me if i'm wrong but he had been doing a bit of former three racing up until that point yeah, that's was, right. Yeah, was very in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and was you know running at the front in those cars. So you know, I felt like it, he was you know a really, really, really good benchmark for me 
And, you know, if I was able to be competitive against him, then, you know, maybe I was, you know, had some ability there, I guess. Um, so, yeah, and then, yeah, that Lotus series was just literally, um, it was a great thing for me because it, it got my name out there. You know, the best thing about those, those Lotus cars is they were all one make. And secondly to that, they raced in front of the, the V8s. Um, so I got to go to all of the circuits. I was racing in front of, you know, the right people in terms of where I wanted to end up. And we just sort of went round by round with, with that and uh, had some, yeah, had some pretty good results along the way and had some not so good results, you know. Uh, I think I remember one race. Uh, that was sort of like a fiberglass front clip on them and it was the last race of, of the day and might have been a bit of front to rear contact. And um, the thing, the, the front clip sort of blew up. It, it sort of crumbled at the front and, you know, at, at speed, then it, it, it blew up and so, so sort of somersaulted up over the top of the car, right? That, that was all well and good. But as it, and this was on the last lap. So it was coming, I think it was Queensland Raceway from memory. I was coming into turn five, last lap. So I've just got to get around to the last corner. But as it's as it's ripped off the car, um, it's ripped the kill switch out as well with it. <laughs> so I, I come to a grinding halt, you know, 300 metres before the finish line. I would have been able to dribble around the last corner, but I, I would have pulled up on sort of row 10 of the grid. And um, so that, you know, I look back at moments like that and think, oh, that was pretty funny, but it wasn't funny at the time, you know, because it would have cost me some good points in the series, I think. <laughs> The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free, because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. How are you doing this? How are you funding this? What were you were you scraping the piggyback? Did you have someone who'd stepped up and, and helped you at this stage? Or are you kind of just playing it alone to just try to find a way to get this thing going? Yeah, so that, that's that's um, Dad was an ambassador for GT Radial Ties, and uh, I remember uh, I would have yeah it would have been probably two thousand and three, and the, the fellow that sort of, I guess, employed that at, at GT Radial Tyres was a, a fellow by the name of Dennis Regal. And um, he's a, yeah, great fellow. And one day um, they were doing some tyre testing or filming out at Sandown and Dad was like, oh, can you go and pick up Dennis from the airport and drive him out to Sandown? Um, and Dennis himself, he, he liked motor racing, um, did a bit of driving himself, so I'd never met him before. I'd gone, gone out to the airport, picked him up, drove him out to Sandown, and just along the way, we sort of got chatting, and he was like, oh, well, you know, what do you want to do with, with yourself? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm like, well, I want to try and have a crack at racing. And from that point, um, he, he tried to help me as, as much as he can. He, not long after that, he actually left um, GT Radial tyres and, and – um, was running a company up in Queensland called True Line Patios and Extensions. Um, and 
he he had done a bit of the the MoPro Paul Pickett um, racing in the Daewoo series. Oh, the Daewoo Lano series. Se- yeah. Then. Oh wow, so, that's never been mentioned on the VH Sleuth podcast well, until now. Until now. <laughs> so um, he Paul Pickett. That's how the whole Lotus thing came about. Um, or the you know the I guess what was initially just going to be a once-off. Um, race at, at Darwin and then yeah from there he helped me along um, you know we're sort of scraping the barrel here there and everywhere and um, about halfway through the the season where it sort of you know we we got to that point we're doing okay in the in the championship um, so it was sort of like well we've got to try and commit to doing the rest of the year and um, I you know, Paul Pickett was really good. He he allowed me to to go up to Sydney and grab the car, and essentially I ended up prepping the car myself, which um, you know saved a huge amount of cost out of things. Because yeah, the way that that I guess um, Paul set things up was you know arrive and drive, so he obviously factored that into you know what the cost was per race for for those people that were just turning up with their helmet and driving. So giving me the, the the ability to prep the car. And that was one thing that, you know, dad was always big on when I was starting was, you know, you got to, you know, preparation is obviously, you know, very, very important. And then, you know, trying to have control of your own destiny. So, um, you know, dad still had his workshop in, in Malvern Road there um, where he ran the race team and we parked it there and, yeah, I'd go and work on, on it there and, um, had a had a mate that would come along with me and and help me as well. So yeah, you know, I look back at it good good times. Um, when when I look back at it now, for sure, it's probably the car that came from the Malvern Road workshop that is forgotten. The Coke Mustang, the Hardtop Falcons, <laughs> the, the Sierras, the Sonovas Falcon, and the Lotus Trophy car the probably trophy, probably yeah. comes in at the bottom of the queue. But it did come from that very famous building, which sadly's. No longer there now. It's an apartment complex, but um, yeah. uh, what a place to have a, a race car prepared. Some of the best and biggest Bathurst assaults were were created and developed and successfully executed from the within the walls there in uh, in Malvern Road. Um, so, is it the True Line link that connects you into to Utes? Because you joined the rough and tumble of V8 Utes the following year, two thousand five. You're shaking your head on the video mm. here. Have you still got scars from racing oh. in Ute racing? Yeah, mate, um, I do. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I think uh, Dennis, through his his um, business up in Queensland, had a contact with um, Trend Windows, and so we got them on board. I think for the last few rounds in the Lotus series in 2004, and um, yeah, they were really sort of keen on it like they they loved what was happening and then um yeah they sort of came to us with the idea of oh well we want to do sort of something next year and they'd seen the um the ute series and they're like well we're sort of quite keen on the utes and at that time you know i think the budget for for ute was about 150 grand 150,000 i should say thousand dollars um but what really appealed to them was the fact that they had they could do up their their road going work utes like the race car and really sort of have that cross promotion 
within the business. Um, and, you know, so that's eventually what happened. And, yeah, I, I, I guess looking back on it, I was never that that keen on on the idea, but it was, you know, motor racing is an expensive, um, at that point, expensive hobby, and you need people to try and support you and pay for it along the way. So um, we had this sponsor willing to, to tip in and, um, yeah, but, it, yeah, it was sort of a hard, hard year. It almost put me off racing, to be honest. Really? That bad? Um, yeah, I sort of really just didn't I, – I didn't like the sort of – I just didn't like it, really. You know, the cars weren't that enjoyable to drive. Yeah, I, I ended up having 2006 not not racing um, for for a different reason. Um, and, that yeah, that was – you know, we'd sort of um, – we'd got trend – they were still keen in, on, on everything – and um, we were a chance to do Carrera Cup. Um, and then in December of 2005, as is the case with sort of most companies that are involved in sponsorship, um, you know, they've been changed it up in management in Trend Windows and um, David Richardson was the, was the guy's name. I still remember him. still remember his name. Um, he was... Um, moved into a, a different direction within the company and, yeah, a decision was made for them to sort of stop spending um, what they had been spending on motorsport. So that sort of dried, it, dried things up pretty quickly and um, yeah, it meant that, yeah, 2006 um, I, I didn't race. Um, but, yeah, sort of I guess what, what unfolded for me was in many ways one of the best things that happened for me, um, which was – the opportunity to start working at, at Sonic Motor Racing Services with um, with Mick and Maria Ritter. So, um, yeah, I, I, I desperately wanted to race Formula Ford. I, you know, we've had a number of guests on this podcast that have come through the ranks of Formula Ford and been successful, and it was still the still the you know the breeding ground. And in many ways, I, I wish it still was for Australian racing because it's such a great category. And, you know, its track record has proven itself, hasn't it? So, um, yeah, I'd become um, mates with Slady um, or, or got to know him better through um, Jacko, Jack Perkins. And um, he was working at Sonic. Um, so, yeah, I just put a sort of phone call through to Mick. I was, you know, and, and the reason why, I, you know, I was keen on, trying to work for Sonic was they were the best Formula Ford team in the country. So I was like, I want to try and eventually race Formula Ford. I think that's what I need to do. But I want, you, know, you want to do it with the best, don't you? So, yeah, I was lucky enough to, to get a job working on the Formula Fords in 06. Yeah, Slady and I, we prepped the cars. It was, so Slady was racing, Tim Blanchard and um, Todd Fiore in the, in the National Series. So I ended up being... Todd's Todd Fiore's mechanic um, at the race meetings, but yeah, between um, Slady and I, we prepped the cars back at the workshop, and um, yeah, that then gave me the opportunity to race Formula Ford in 07. Am I right in remembering, mate? And maybe it was 05, or maybe it was around that period that you got your first go in a V8 supercar. Didn't you drive one of the old? Dick Johnson Racing AU Falcons around. Was it 05? How did that all come to be? 
Uh, yeah, it was uh, 2000 and end of 2004. Four, um, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I tested, I think it would have been, yeah, December 2004, just just after the the finale at um, that was Eastern Creek back then um, in one of their Fujitsu series cars, the, the AU. So, yeah, that was just set up through Steve Chalker, who was the general manager or MD back there back then and then from that airway sort of actually formed a bit of a i guess junior development program a a little bit djr were on the ute in terms Mm -hmm. of they supported me a little bit um and through 2005 i got to do some some testing in there um back then their fujitsu series cars as well so i would have done yeah probably two or three days um in 2005 as well so i think i Went well enough when I first drove the car in 2004 to at least get asked back to to um, have a have a few more tests in you know five and you know the, the I guess the long term view was to uh, potentially step up into their Fujitsu series program later on down the track but yeah that sort of never eventuated that sort of opportunity of or that that scenario evaporated and um, yeah but yeah. It was, I guess, fast forwarding a bit when I made my main game debut with with DJR in 2011. It was ironic in a way that you know Dick and DJR they gave me my very first taste of a V8 supercar way back in 2004. Yeah, it came full circle. It just took a bit longer yeah. than you maybe hoped to to get there. So. 06 is the mechanic year with with Sonic. 07, you get your bum in a car in the National Series. So I think it's yourself, Tim Blanchard, who won the championship. Who was the other driver at Sonic there that year? Uh, Glenn Wood in the Formula Fords. That's Uh, right. Dale's brother. It was too. It was too. So the the common thing here was you kept going and doing one year in each category. We had a year out. So Lotus, Utes, year out, Formula Ford, Carrera Cup, development series you never got a second go in any of the things but you did well enough in each of them to kind of leapfrog to the next thing is that just how it worked out or was there a plan there or why why did that sort of come to be how it turned out to be yeah that's that's really just sort of how it worked out um i think yeah you know seven um reynolds was doing career cup with sonic and and then he won the championship so he obviously moved on i'd done I think finished third in, in Formula Ford, and you know, sort of had a discussion with would have been yeah you know, with Mick towards the end of the year, and it was sort of like oh well there's an, an opportunity to maybe move up, and you know I would have been like well do you think I'm ready or you know should we do another year of Formula Ford, and he would have said let's have a crack at it, and. Um, you know, it wasn't just as simple as that. It was still had to work bloody hard behind the scenes to to get the budget together and all those sorts of things. And you know, it would have been a no, it wasn't would have been it was a big step up in terms of finding um, the budget to to compete in Carrera Cup and you know driving in in the Bob Jane Teamarts car that Rodney Jane um, he he subsidised that um, I guess ride quite a lot. So you know that made it made it possible you know he, he still took up a, a large percentage of the signage on that car but you know he he owned the car and he uh, he covered a certain amount of of the running budget um 
along with that. So, um, but yeah, and there was always that sort of, I guess, I probably was, I, I felt like I was maybe two or three years a bit um, like older than, than some of the guys I was competing. So I, I didn't necessarily have the, the luxury of being able to spend two or three years in, in a category because I, you know, I didn't start form racing former Ford when I was 17 or 16. So um, there was a bit of maybe that thinking as well, but yeah, it was sort of, I guess, yeah, the former Ford year in 07, that was a pretty big change for, for Sonic, you know, cause I'd been running the Van Diemen's for basically forever. And then in, in 07, we, we, they changed to the Miguel chassis. So that was a pretty big off season. I remember that building the cars and, um, yeah, even like my car arrived very late. Um, I think I only got two test days in it before the first round at Clipsal. Um, whereas, you know, the other two cars, um, Blanchards and, and Woods, they um, arrived earlier and we built them over sort of Christmas and those boys had sort of done sort of six to eight test days um, um, before the, the season started. So they had a bit of a bit of a head start, um, which which was fine, you know. Like I was still running things on a bit of a shoestring anyway. You know, Mick was was Mick and Maria were pretty good to me um, in sort of helping me out as much as they could. And then yeah, from that get yeah, Career Cup, and then we were going to do Career Cup again. Um, I finished the year in two thousand and eight pretty strongly, and um, yeah, the plan was to to do Career Cup again, but then. The series <laughs> had folded. Yeah, so I was going to say it's it, pretty hard to do a series when it folds. It, it kind of means you've got to look elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I ended up winning at that point the last race and round of Kura Cup for a few years at least um, up on the Gold Coast. And Mick um, had already made the decision to step up or or to to run in the development series, Fujitsu series, um, and had sort of committed to, you know, getting those cars off Triple Eight. And, but yeah, even even with all that happening, it was sort of like, nah, we'll we'll have another crack at a career cup. We'll try and go for the for this the series, you know. And Beto at that point, he was he was the the guru in Porsches and. Um, a really, really good benchmark and we thought, well, you know, if we can put it all together and, and hopefully have a tilt at the championship, that that would, would be good. But then, yeah, like I said, Pura Cup folded and it was sort of, there wasn't then just a, a I wasn't then just a shoe-in or an automatic guarantee to, to step into that um, development series drive at, at Sonic. Um, and it, yeah, it was still probably pretty last minute but you know because it was it was all budget related i remember that car turning up to adelaide and i think it was plain white with a bit of blue <laughs> a bit like the sonic formula fords but there were no real stickers anywhere until was it part way through that weekend that fujitsu popped up on the side and a couple of yep. other ones got involved and i think peter boylan might have got involved as well and there was a few extra stickers pop up so if you look at the photos of the car from practice qualifying race one two three You've probably you can probably tell which session it was because of what stickers were on it because it kept yeah. changing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Peter Boylan's support came a bit later in the year, but um, 
I, I guess, yeah, sort of just, yeah, prior to that and Mick giving me the nod to um, drive that car for the year, um, you know, it was it, yeah, probably a bit of a, a, a moment where, well, we, you know, we didn't have the budget in place or, or the full budget in place, you know, far, far from it. And um, I just got to a point where I just sort of had to back myself in, you know, make the commitment to, to finding the budget and, and back myself in. And if it was meaning, you know, going into a lot of debt, then, that, you know, that was something that I was prepared to do. Um, and then, you know, we, we had countless number of proposals out, but that's no different to anybody else at that sort of point in your career. You know, you're always on the on the chase for any sort of um, sponsorship support you can you can muster up. So we went to that yeah that first race at, at Adelaide um, yeah with with nothing on the doors, which um, that was sort of a conversation that that Mick and I actually had maybe a couple of weeks out. We were like, well, you know, do we just take a real cheap amount of money and just, you know, put it on the side of the car for the sake of having something there, you know, like five or 10 grand here. It's, it all adds up, obviously, you know, it was nowhere near what, what we need or what we needed to run the car. But um, we sort of both made the decision that now we didn't really want to undersell it for one of a better word. Um, and yeah, so she, she was nude, absolutely <laughs> nude rolling out of the truck on, Wednesday would would have been Wednesday park up at uh, at at Clipsal. and then uh, I remember doing a deal with Dirk Kleinsmith, photographer on, who's been on, on the podcast before. Yeah, so um, he ended up being on the on the front bar and maybe the corners of, of the rear bar as, as well. Um, I did a deal with with Dirk to um, a contra deal to do all all the photography for me for the year. I'd run his 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 um, Dirk Kleinsmith logo on the car for the weekend and you know he was happy with that so that that's that logo snuck on there before practice and then um yeah it was so I remember it vividly mate I'd call a four we had yeah we we're quick in practice I think quickest in both practices um and you know, bear in mind this is obviously our not not only my debut in the series but the teams so um we were all pretty fresh to it Obviously, a pretty good. Um, we'll start with a pretty good base package with with an extra triple eight car, um, and then qualified second. I don't know what happened in qualifying. I guess I probably just stuffed it up somewhere because <laughs> um, I would have thought we yeah we 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 did have the pace to be to be quickest. And then um, Fujitsu approaches or approached me in between qualifying in the first race. And I remember the amount of money. It was $5,000 and they wanted the doors and the bonnet. And I've, so I've gone to Mick. I'm like, what do we do? They're the series sponsor. They've come to us. You know, they probably saw a cheap deal. Well, a pretty good cheap deal there. And then I was sort of like, well, maybe if I can keep them, if I put them on the car and I can keep them when we have a good weekend, a good result, maybe I can sort of entice them to, to stay on for the rest of the year. So we sort of make not and my memory of it is, you know, we'd sort of convinced ourselves, yeah, that's, that's the idea to do, you know, a good, good idea to, to run with it. And, um, 
I was still putting the stickers on the car on the dummy grid before the first race. <laughs> <laughs> That's how sort of last minute it was. So, um, yeah, because uh, back then um, the, the paddock was on the outside of the circuit. So you'd go from your marquee to a sort of semi-false dummy grid and then drive around to the pits, change your tyres and then out to the grid. So when I say I was still putting the, the stickers on the dummy grid, that's that's where I was doing it. And then, yeah, I was yeah, fortunate enough or lucky enough or, or, or you know, um, or good enough, I don't know, we, we went and won the first race, which was, um, you know, I still look back at that as sort of one of my probably proudest moment, if not proudest moment in my career. Um, you'll tell me because you're, you're the stats man, but I, I can't recall anybody else that's been able to do that on their debut is, is win their first race. And I'm, I'm not, I guess, talking about it from a personal level. I'm talking about it from, there was, you know, the team's first race in, in the Dunlop series as well, or Fujitsu series back then. So um, just from an, an all-round, I guess, effort, um, a huge amount of satisfaction. And then there's obviously the, you know, the personal satisfaction as well. But, um that's only really probably the people that were involved with with that at the time that that know how much effort went into just getting us there in the first place, and then to achieve success was was really great. Yeah. What was the linchpin then? That clearly you've got a result. You've rolled out. You've had a win. You've qualified at the front. People go, "Ooh, hello! This bike can this bike can pedal. This is this is pretty good." But was it the critical, and it twigs me because I'm, we're doing this on Zoom, I can see in the background you've got some of your helmets on display there. I'm seeing tinges of yellow and black. Yeah. The, the, the backing that came from Norton, is that the bit that leapfrogged you? Because they were with you for quite a bit after that. Was that the crucial, if you look back at your whole career and you get little, little breaks and good fortune and good contacts and someone who gave you a helping hand or a bit of money here or a, a connection or an introduction there, is the Norton bit that came along in that year the bit that was the crucial part of James Moffat being a pro race driver for the next 10 years? Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. Um, yeah, so just to, I guess, you know, backtrack ever so slightly, we'd done Clipsal. Uh, the next round of the championship was at Winton. Um, nothing ever transpired with Fujitsu. Um, so... Thing ran nude again there at Winton, um, and yeah, we didn't have a very good round. Had a issue with the clutch off. We we're leading the first race, but then the, yeah, basically clutch clutch failed um, two or three laps into the race, and we we're just sort of trying to hang on. And I think I got wiped out by Daniel Gort. I remember well. Yeah, turn um, one. Yeah, yep. Um, you know, he was trying to bomb it up the inside of somebody who was trying to bomb it up the inside of me because we we're just you know limping around trying to um, probably just trying to get to the finish and stay in the top 10 because it was reversed top 10s back then for the second race. So then, yeah, we got got through Winton. And then uh, the third round of the series was Townsville in 2009, which was the first event for Townsville. And uh, that would have still been probably mid-year, mid, mid, mid year. I think July maybe. July, yeah. It's yeah, always yeah. been about July, yeah. Yep. So... 
um, a big chunk of the year had had, um, had passed, but you know we hadn't been able to land, you know, the sort of big sponsor that we needed to be able to um, essentially go racing. And that's where Peter Boylan's support started for me. Um, you know, he's got a long history of of supporting, um, you know, even Neil Crompton. Yeah, who I know yeah. you've just just had on the pod. So um, that's that's how long his support goes back in terms of um, helping helping people out. And um, I think yeah, it was pretty touch and go as to whether we were even going to put the thing in the truck. To be honest, you know, Mick was rightly so, sort of stressing out about money. I was stressing out about it as well because you don't like owing people money. Um, and then, yeah, Peter's support came along and a few other dribs and drabs. And it's still, I think the money that I sort of had in place for, for Townsville still wasn't an, enough to cover, you know, the weekend's budget, if you like. So are, but, you going, are you going further and further into debt yourself at this point? Yeah. Yep. Or are you going, well, you pay me this much to work here during the week at Sonic. It costs this much to go car racing. There's the difference, and I'll oh, just no, keep accruing. There's a big difference. Unfortunately, there was a big difference. So, um, yeah, but back then, the, the prize money for Fujitsu Series was actually pretty handy. Mm. Um, I think it was 1500 for pole, but I'm, I'm going to say that a round win was like 15 grand or something. Like it, it was decent money, um, relatively speaking, obviously. Um, well, they, well, they don't get it now. It's certainly no, not exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we, we went up there and we just finally got some stickers on the car, which was nice. And um, I just had yeah, an unreal weekend finished. You know, we're, we got polls. So I got the prize money from that. I'm like, you beauty. I know, I know where that's going. You know, it wasn't like, well, that's going in the back pocket. It's going straight to Mick and Maria. Um, and then, yeah, won the first race. And then, yeah, so anyway, we won the round. It was sort of like, oh, that's a, that was a big relief, obviously, because um, we did well. We sort of got our championship back on track as well because we had a bit of a, bit of a shitter at, um, at Winton. So things were, were looking okay. And then... Um, but then it's sort of like, okay, get back from the weekend. Whew, right. Okay. We got through that weekend. Didn't have it. Didn't put a mark on the car. So that was also important. No damage. And then it's like, okay, Sandown's coming up. What, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to find, how am I going to find the money to get there? And what do you got to find per round in those days for a budget oh, for, for the DVS? 50 grand, like, 40 grand? Yeah, look, if, if I'm going to say the, the total budget, it would have been uh, would have been closer to five hundred grand than it would have been four hundred grand. You know, I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. Seven, seven, you, seven rounds. Do the math. You, you can figure yeah, out you're, exactly. You're trying to find a bit of coin. So how does the how does the Norton deal happen? Because it's as we said before, it's a crucial part of the story here. Yep. Yep. So um, Norton had been. I think sponsoring the Triple Eight cars, uh, the Vodafone cars are on the windscreen banners, um, and so so they started having an involvement in the sport, and then they became title sponsor for the Sandown event, which was just a sprint event that year. Um, and then the idea just 
popped in my head. I'm like, I need to get onto this Norton mob. They're sort of new to the sport. They're sponsoring the event. They sponsor Triple Eight, but I can I can offer them their own car at their own event. Mm, makes sense. So yeah, got on got onto them, um, and yeah, bless him. He's I uh, consider him sort of a, a guardian angel in, in many ways. Um, Matthew Jack Drake was the man in charge of spending the money, and um, so I spoke to him, put the idea forward to him. Um, they showed some some interest, and then they sort of came back and um, they were like, "Okay, yeah, we we want to do this." Um, there was one one proviso though that I had to put, I had to have the car, the actual race car, on display um, for a function they were having at um, Hogsbreath Cafe in Chadston on the Thursday night. Not, I, not ideal for Friday practice preparation, just quietly. No, exactly, yeah. And, you know, the people that would listen to this or listen to this podcast and, and know Mick Ritter know that how much of a hardcore racer he, he is and sort of, I guess, um, the PR side of things is probably not Mick's forte. <laughs> you so, reckon? You yeah. reckon? <laughs> and, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying that. I, no, I, not I, at all. I hope he doesn't mind. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I remember the conversation. And I think also the, the money that I, that I hit Norton for was maybe – it still wasn't enough for, to, to cover the round, but, again, it was sort of, okay, backing myself a bit, um, get the foot in the door with them. Hopefully I'd sort of, you know, like it all. Um, but, yeah, so then spoken to Mick, I'm like, right, we've got to um, – I've got to put this car on display on the Thursday night. He's like, right, right, right. Well, you're going to have to organise that yourself. Like, I'm not bloody interested in that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. So, um, got, um, and it's bad that I don't even know his first name, but everybody in the motorsport industry calls him by this evil, the tow truck driver who gets yeah. cars. Here Transports them everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Yep. So, um, evil got it there for me, um, picked it up from the workshop. And then um, I can't even remember if we, got it back to the track Thursday night or whether we dropped it off at the track at Friday morning before practice. But anyway, the car was there for, for their function at the Hogsbreath Cafe and it was at Hogsbreath because it was a sort of co-event with, with Triple Eight. Hogsbreath were sponsoring Triple Eight back then as well. So that's how all that worked. Um, and then, again, we, we, you know, we had pretty good Weekend, I think. I've qualified on pole, won the first race, got caught up in a bit of crap in the reverse grid race. So that put us off the back, I think. Well, not, you know, not, not where we should have been for the last race, but um, I think we sort of got back up to second or third in, in, in the final. Um, but more importantly, you know, Norton loved it. They got really good coverage out of it. And I guess, yeah, on the on the Saturday there, getting, getting pole and, and winning winning the first race, um, that that really helped things. And then, yeah, I remember sort of getting getting through that weekend and it was like, okay, right, I've got to try and keep these guys on, on board. And um, like I said, Matthew Drake, he, he, he loved it all, which was, was fortunate. Um, and then I, I remember working out how much money 
I still needed to do the the season because I, you know, I was a fair bit in arrears, and there was three rounds left in the championship. Um, and I was like, the the number was ridiculous. You know, I was like, I'm gonna have to ask the question. And actually, no, I, I think Matthew actually came to me, and he sort of knew the situation a little bit, but he was like, what What are you gonna need? What's the number you need to do the rest of the year in you know keeping the car as it was in in, in the Norton livery? So I would have got those figures together, and I'm like, oh, no, nah, this is like it was, it was a big number for essentially you know when you divide it by three. You're waiting for the no, or, not the yes. Even if you divide it by four, you know, including the Sandown event. And so I've just I've told him the number, and um, yeah, they they agreed to it. And yeah, we we just went on from there, finished the year, and then that that flowed into them continuing the the naming rights sponsorship in in twenty ten, and yeah, that was yeah that 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 year just probably didn't go to plan for for a number of reasons, but yeah, that that's why yeah without that without that Sandown event happening, and then subsequently, you know, um, Norton staying on for the rest of two thousand and nine, then. We probably wouldn't be having this conversation, mate. You know, it's probably yeah. as simple as that. So, I owe, uh, you know, words really can't probably describe how grateful I, I am to to Matthew and and the Norton and people. You know, the Norton family really. Yeah, it's a long-standing relationship that, that covered you over for for quite a while. Hey, quickly, um, because I'm looking at your screen and you've got some cool stuff in the background in your home office. There, it's a yeah. nice segue. Great partner of ours is the Motorsport Trader. They are keeping motorsport memories alive through their website, themotorsporttrader.com. They they buy, sell, consign, sell, all sorts of memorabilia, race car parts and panels, suits, helmets, uh, wheels, tyres, you name it. If it's off a race car or from a racing person, they've got it. So head to the website, themotorsporttrader.com, which prompts the question, are you a memorabilia junkie? Do you keep every suit, every helmet, everything you've ever had, do you give some away? Do you sell some? Where are you on the scale? Because I feel our guests, the drivers we, we speak to, are either they're at one end of the scale or the other. They've kept everything or they've kept nothing. Where do you fit on that one? I am a full junkie, mate. Oh, you're I, a hoarder. You're a full yeah. hoarder, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no. I've, uh, I've got um, maybe apart from a couple of pairs of gloves or boots, I've got yeah, every, every race suit. Every helmet, um, yeah, and I guess probably the the main reason for that is um, Dad basically didn't keep any of that stuff, and it's it's still pretty recent because I you know basically cleaned out his workshop um, towards the end of two thousand and fifteen when he finally made the decision to to sell the workshop and. You touched on it before. It's now a block of apartments. But, um, yeah, he just didn't keep any of that stuff apart from a couple of race suits. Um, But, yeah, no no helmets or anything like that. And, um, yeah, rightly or wrongly, I'm sort of into that sort of stuff. And I've I've just sort of made the decision that, having a couple of children myself now, that, I want to hold on to it until at least they get to an age where if they're interested in it and they want to keep it, 
well, then it, it's theirs, but I don't want to get rid of it. And then in 10 or 15 years' time have, you know, my young bloke come to me and go, why didn't you keep that dad or why didn't you keep mm-hmm. that helmet or this suit? You know, like that would have been really cool, you know. So that's part of the reason. And then um, really early days, um, I somebody told me that Craig Lowndes um, doesn't have any of his HRT championship winning suits because it wasn't in his driving contract that he got to keep a suit. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy, you know, to think that Lowndes doesn't have those suits. You know, I've never confirmed that with, with Craig himself, but the person that told me would probably know. And, um, yeah, so that was always like, okay, if I do ever get to a point where I'm negotiating a contract with a team, well, I want to put that in the clause that I get to keep at least one race suit, and I've managed to do that with all the teams that I've driven for. Um, so, yeah, that's um, yeah, I can confirm that I'm, I'm at the top end of the scale for memorabilia junkies. I love my model cars, and um, obviously, yeah, Bianchi have done the collection of all Dad's cars, and I, I have basically all of them except for maybe two or three, and then um, yeah, f- fortunate enough that there's some model cars that have my name on the on the window as well. So I've got all obviously uh, not not all the cars that I've driven, but probably the last last few years I've been a bit slack in in getting a hold of um, the cars I've probably since since co-driving really. Mm. Um, but yeah, all my sort of full time regular cars I've I've in supercars at least I've I've got models of. I now understand the property development thing. You need to make more places to put more of your stuff. I totally exactly. get it now. It makes sense. Yeah. I need uh, I need big a big shed or a big garage, you know, to keep all my crap somewhere. So it drives drives Leah and my wife mad. But um, here we got a little little room um, that sort of displays most of the model cars and a few few helmets as well. So and then yeah, as you can. Not that the listeners can see, but you can see behind me. And um, yeah, I've got a few helmets in, in the office as well. What's your uh, your most prized one? If they said you could only keep one, what's the suit? What's the helmet? Is it a specific race or event or team or or era that it's got a, a fond place in your heart? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I've actually never sort of thought of it like that. Um, but yeah, probably. Probably the yeah the helmet um, that I wore when we won at Clipsal um, in two thousand and nine, and then the helmet that I was wearing twenty thirteen um, at Winton, uh, the first win in supercars, and then yes, yeah, so I've got I've got the gloves, boots, and um, and helmet and and the race suit obviously, um, and then yeah the race suit from. Bathurst 2014 is pretty cool. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. We'll get to that soon. We'll get to that that era. So you mentioned and sort of alluded to it before that the following year in the DVS, it was still a Norton Falcon, but it wasn't a Sonic car. You went to Ford Performance Racing and ran out of there, and I remember vividly having done the television in that era. Anything that could go wrong that year pretty much did go wrong. Why did the wheels fall off there? And I guess before that, why didn't you stay at Sonic for that next year? Yeah, you're well, like 2010. It was it was just a balls up, really. But um, that all sort of 
um, the way that all unfolded is in back back in those days. Um, you'll you'll remember them. They you know they used to have what they called evaluation days for the for the main teams. Um, so I got a I got an opportunity to do an evaluation day with um, FPR back then. In would have been middle of two thousand and nine, um, which was yeah, like at the time, you know, obviously a very big deal. It was like factory Ford team opportunity to go and drive their car, um, and it was a bit of a loophole back then that the teams used just to give sort of their co-drivers a bit of extra miles. Um, so yeah, it was actually Luke Gildon was was doing the test day. And um, I think, you know, the main driver was still allowed to do 10, 10 laps. So, you know, Frosty would have been there as well. But, yeah, I remember jumping in this thing. Um, and, yeah, like my first impressions were, were like, whoa, this thing feels pretty racy. Like this is a lot different to my Dunlop Series car, which is – sorry, I keep saying Dunlop Series, but – We know what you mean. Know, yeah, DVS. You know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 DVS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. This thing's a fair bit different to to the the DVS car, and you know the DVS car was obviously pretty handy equipment. Um, and yeah, I think from memory, like went went pretty good in it straight away. I think I was maybe a couple of tenths quicker than than Yildon, which um, yeah, I sort of remember Tim Edwards. He was at the test, and he was a bit like, "You got an enduro drive?" I'm like, "Nah," and then he's like. Well, I'm sort of well. I am committed with Canto and and Yildon, so I'm sort of a bit, you know, I, I couldn't put you in one of our cars, but maybe I'll have a bit of a look around for you. And back then, the wild cards were just coming in as well, and you know, there was a real small possibility that um, Sonic were going to have a crack at it. Um, and the thing sort of that sort of stopped that from happening was the fact that we were still in the championship. So it was like, oh, if we use that car, my, my regular car to race in in the wildcard entry, then what am I going to use in the development series races? Um, so, yeah, anyway, that, that never never transpired. But then so doing the evaluation day with FPR obviously started that relationship. Um, and then, yeah, from, from that point, um, there was, from a performance point of view, there was no, no reason to to leave Sonic. Um, you know, car was absolutely more than competitive. Uh, probably the only thing we lacked in in twenty nine two thousand and nine was um, we didn't really have the current engine package. Um, back then there was a couple of little dif- different specifications with the cylinder heads and um, it was just a cost point of point of, point of view, you know, or, or um, situation, I should say. Um, so we were a bit down on, on horsepower. Um, I think I remember looking at some data from uh, Wink Up at Sandown and – Basically, if there was sort of seven tenths or eight tenths in in lap time, seven tenths of that was on the straights. You know, so I sort of felt like, oh, I'm I'm driving okay here. Um, but you know, having said that, we were still at the front of the DVS field. But 
at Bathurst where our horsepower is obviously very critical. We were probably giving away a little bit too much. Uh, but, yeah, so from a, but from a performance point of view, and uh, the plan was always to maybe upgrade the motor for, for 2010, which I think – oh, sorry, 2000 and, yeah, 2010, um, which I think Mick ended up doing um, when Blanchard drove the car. And, uh, yeah, so we didn't do it in 2009 because it was a, a cost point of view. We are just leasing the engines off Kenny Mack and, you know, those things – they bulletproof. They'd just set and forget. They were great mm-hmm. things, but we're just maybe down on a few ponies. That's all. Um, but yeah, so then yeah, there's no no reason for me from a performance point of view to to want to leave Sonic. But um, you know, there was a, a deal on the place on on the on the table with with FPR, and that involved doing the endurance races. So it was that was sort of a hard carrot to sort of knock knock back. Um, and originally I was going to drive for Matt White because um, he had purchased ex-FPR cars in 2009. Webby won the championship in that car, and I, I actually tested that car at the end of the year at Winton for, for Matty White. Um, so that was all – that was actually all happening. But then reading between the lines, I, you know, I think – and probably – Tim Edwards is the only one that confirmed this, but he got the idea, oh, we could run the car ourselves, as in FPR could run it. They had Tim Morton's um, old Patrizzi car sitting in the corner and, um, you know, he sort of had that Ford Rising Stars program that had evaporated a little bit Um but then, so then there was also a chance for, for them to get that sort of program going again. Jim got, got his car sort of tuned up a little bit. Um, but I remember, yeah, so, so then that's what happened. The Matty White deal was like I was racing for Matty White. And then sort of, it would have been, I think, early January in 2010. It's like, oh, no, I'm now going to run this thing out of FPR. Which on paper you're like, oh well, that's going to be an even better deal. Mm. The thing was that car of Jim's was she was pretty bent up and twisted. It wasn't a great thing. Like I remember putting it on the setup. Um, so part of my deal with with FPR with the endurance races is I, I went and worked for the team. So then you know then I was prepping my own car, which I was fine with. I remember for the first time th- dropping it down on the setup pads and going what's going on here like the corner weights were so far out and you know coming from the year before with the the x triple eight car and you know mick with mick Ritter with his sort of setup work is just absolutely meticulous um so it was like oh, okay this is this is something i haven't experienced in terms of trying to set up the car with what we had to do with the, the corner weights and, and bits and pieces to even try and get a 50% cr- cross weight. Um, and then also probably second to that was Campbell Little had just started in that era at FPR. So traditionally, if you said FPR's cars were quite stiffly sprung 
you know, I don't want to get too technical for the listeners that aren't technical out there, but, you know, very stiffly sprung, stiff roll bars, low roll uh, centres, whereas a triple eight car, you know, very soft package, quite opposite. And obviously Tr- Campbell had come from triple eight. So there was a bit of an engineering philosophy shift in within FPR. And I guess more importantly, those FPR BFs back in the day, they worked pretty well at, as that sort of stiff package, which was sort of probably the, the brighty package, if you like, brighty fuel keyed package in, in a way. Um, and it just, it just, the car didn't work. Um, you now we tried to make the car as sort of identical to the, the FG as, as possible in terms of hardware. So there was, there was, I guess, on on paper, no reason why it shouldn't work, but it just, it didn't. You know, the Matty White cars was were quite quick, and and you touched on it. Like anything that could go wrong that year, it did. You know, with didn't you run out of round. fuel? You ran yeah, out of fuel mate. at one race. We ran out of fuel in a DVS race at at the last race at, at Queensland Raceway. You know, that sort of s- sums it up, really. Like. Non, non-fueling non like how do you run out of fuel like it was just a I said it before it was just a, a balls up and you know part of that was the back then the first two races I'm going to say if they were 15 lappers the last race for DVS was maybe a 20 or a 22 lapper and I, I think they just put fuel in it for 15 you know, I'm going to say 15 yeah, laps so yeah. and the ironic thing there was you know that was a weekend if I'm going to say that was maybe the second round of the season um We'd sort of gone there with the soft package. Um, prior to that, you know, even in the main series, the the FPR cars were jets around Queensland Raceway, and so the first couple of races, you know, we wouldn't have qualified very well. In, um, you know, I don't think we would have gone that flash in the first couple of races, and then we, I think from memory, for the last race, we're just like, oh, we'll just put a put the old setup back in it. You know, the traditional sort of FPR set up in it and you know thing was quick and I think I'd made it up to maybe second or third from coming coming from a from a distance back and yeah then the thing ran out of fuel and I think at Winton I got rubbed into on the first corner and it broke the exhaust mounts and we got black flagged because of the, the exhaust was dragging on the ground so it was just like one of those things and then I I do remember that race because I was like, oh, well, we're out of the race. Like, if we're going to come in and fix this, we'll go a lap down. I'm like, got on the radio and said to them, let's just change change our tyres because we would have saved our best set of tyres for the last race. And I'm like, well, we're out of the race. Let's just put our, you know, shitty tyres on, you know, to save the, the tyres moving forward to the next round. So we've got a good set of practice tyres or whatever. And the guys are like, oh, no, because we would pit out the front of the main series team we were the last race of the day and the, they'd already started taking down the boom so they're like oh we don't have any equipment to, to change tyres anyway so then I knowing me I would have had the shits on and I I think in that race I, I actually just I dropped it on my own and ended up in in the kitty litter you know a couple of laps down I, you know, I would have just been driving not so happy <laughs> <laughs> angry one might say so yep. You know, there were there were parts of the year where obviously, you know, I didn't do do a good enough job, and then yeah, there were parts of the year where, 
you know, probably as a team, we didn't do do enough, good enough job. Um, ultimately, just didn't didn't have enough pace to to challenge. You know, Stevie O was mega quick that year, and he he rolled on with the championship and did it pretty pretty easily. So, um, you know, I look back at that now and go, he was obviously. Yeah, he's a very talented driver, but he, you know, he was in the plum gig. He was driving with, with Wing Cup that year, wasn't he, in, in the endurance mm. races? So yeah. he was no, no, no slouch and, um, yeah, deservedly won the championship that year. It was in an ex Tasman car. So um, they were still pretty handy in, in the main series. Um, by the time that car got sort of handed down to, I think, Greg Murphy Racing. Yeah, that? yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah, so it just, yeah. I guess, ironically, in a way, I finished second in 2009 and then um, Blanchard stepped into that car with Sonic and he finished second in 2010 and we finished third in, in 2010. Um, and, yeah, it was probably a period where there was, a yeah, I guess, secondly, what, what was really the carrot with the FPR thing was there was, I guess the idea of, of stepping up into the main game the following year. Um, but, yeah, a few things unfolded in, in 2010 that sort of put me out of the frame of, of that. And, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a great time, but you look back at it now and you, you just put it down to experience. Mm. And the relationship, I guess, that didn't end well when you, you left there. But I guess as we talk about full circles, you're back in the same building now driving in the endurance races and you've become a, a crucial part of their driver puzzle every year for the last few years. You drove with Chaz, you've been driving with Jack LeBrock. You just, you never know where yeah. this whole journey will, will take you. So it, it's um, a bit of maturity, a bit of experience, everyone sort of looking back on things. Uh, it's amazing where it all tends to lead. And isn't it funny that you come off this year that's quite frankly a shitter in 2010, but you get in the main game the next year in the car that won the championship. Tell me how the hell does that work? Yeah, well, I guess – so going back on the memorabilia side of things, um, I made my debut in the championship with DJR and part of that was with the support of, of Norton. Um, and um, Norton were never really that keen to be associated with the, the Jim Beam alcohol sponsorship. so. Um, but they wanted me in a Norton race suit. You remember back in, in that Jim Beam era, they had one gold sort of accented car, which Courtney raced, and then Stevie J was in, in the red highlights. Um, so James had the Jim Beam suit that had, you know, white, black, and gold, if you like, on it. Um, but because I was to wear a Norton suit, I'm like, oh, I'll, there won't be one of those Jim Beam suits around. But no, there is noons. I actually have one of those suits. We did a photo shoot at the start of the year in 2011 and Jim Beam wanted just to grab a, a couple of promo shots in, of me in, in the Jim Beam gold highlighted suit, if you like. Um, so I've got that stored away in the, in, the, in the cupboard as well. It's never been worn in anger, but... It's been in a couple of photos, but yeah. So then, obviously, all the 
there was a bit happening with DJR towards the end of 2010, yeah, ownership just, things and yeah, it's just a bit. driver movements and, and all that. And um, But, yeah, like I honestly, I finished 2010 Homebush last round of the series. I thought, mm, yeah, this is it's going to be, be tough to – to get a ride full time in in the main series, um, so I was sort of like, oh, th- this might be it, you know. Like, I've done done the enduros with Richo in 2010 at FPR. That was all part of, like I said, the deal, and um, didn't set the world on fire um, at Phillip Island or Bathurst. So yeah, I was sort of like, mm, this this isn't looking great. But then yeah, it was only a couple of weekends after. After say mid December, that yeah, things had sort of started to fall into place at, at DJR in terms of you know people moving and leaving and all that sort of things with with Charlie and and um, JC and um, ownership changes. So yeah, there was there was an opportunity to possibly end up in that seat, and yeah, it did require a bit of support and. I think, from memory, Richo was actually a candidate for the drive as well. He had a bit of support, I believe, at the time from Dunlop Super Dealers. Um, and, yeah, it was for for whatever reason, there were a, a couple of people within DJR that were, like, f- prepared to have have a crack at giving me a go, and that that's how it all unfolded. So it was like, oh, I'm I'm going to be in in the main game now, and it's like, well, it's a pretty decent car. Like, <laughs> obviously, just won the championship. Um, but yeah, I I got there in the start of 2011, and I'm not taking anything away from it. But yeah, obviously, the a lot of personnel had left the team um, since the end of 2010 and and the start of the start of the year. So. It, it wasn't like I was stepping into the exact same, you know, team um, as such. But, you know, I absolutely – I love my time at DJR. It was, yeah, such a, a privilege to drive for Dick. And, you know, from somebody that had grown up in the sport, always around the sport. So I knew who Dick Johnson was, obviously. And, you, you know, yeah, obviously a pretty big deal. But then – actually going and living in Queensland and then seeing what Dick Johnson actually means to Queensland and how much of a big deal he is in Queensland. It's like, whoa, this is like another level again. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, like I've I've got really, really fond memories of of those two years there and um, it could have been even longer, but yeah, the way things un unfolded it was yeah it didn't work out that way but yeah absolutely loved it that was part one of our chat with james moffat thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with moff to talk topics of motorsport of all sorts and the great thing is part two drops next week we talk about his time racing the nissan altimas in v8 supercars that infamous win at winton on the e70 fuel 
finish it on the podium at Bathurst in 2014. He opens up really honestly about what Bathurst means to him. His time with Gary Rogers Motorsport, both in supercars and currently in TCR, two very different eras for him in a short space of time. Plus, James tackles your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. Head to the website now, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Pick yourself up something special ahead of Christmas or a a little present for yourself. There's a whole pile of motorsport books there for you to enjoy. Sign up to our newsletter too via vhsleuth.com.au. It'll give you all the links to our latest news stories on our website. Some special offers along the way too. You've got to get on board and be part of the V8 Sleuth family. Follow us on socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'd love to see all of your feedback about the pod. Leave us a review. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an upcoming episode. Anyway, that's me done for this week. The V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Next week, part two with James Moffat. Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long, shifting from day into dusk into darkness. Lights on, because in Sydney, we ignite the night. We are go to light up our Sydney sky. You don't want to miss this. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars, unforgettable.